0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: The the thing I still wonder about was when uh, Trump went in on Friday in Pensacola. Man, thank you for not going in Sunday. Because Friday night, Moore went ahead four points again. Saturday, it was three points. Sunday, it was two points. We're sitting there Monday night going, like, keep drifting. But Monday night, we were up by 2.
2: Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am excited about this episode. So I've got Joe Trippi on the show this week. And Joe is, I've known him for a long time. I I knew him back on the Howard Dean campaign when he was a campaign manager. Uh, he was an early reader of my earliest blog. I had like 32 readers. And one of them turned out to be Joe Trippi, uh, who invited me to intern for the campaign for a couple months, which I did. So I've known him a long time. He's not just a great political consultant, but one of the real early theorists and practitioners of how the internet would change media. Uh, He's worked for a lot of folks, Ted Kennedy, Walter Mondo, Gary Hart, Dick Gephardt, Jerry Brown, John Edwards. But Pretty importantly, right now, he was a chief media strategist on the Doug Jones campaign. So he was there from the beginning, from the early discussions with Doug Jones about whether he should run through the entire campaign, the runoff between Luther Strange and Roy Moore, the eventual win, the the construction of the ads, the reading of the polls, all of it. And this is a really fun discussion where he really does give the inside story of that campaign, including a lot of things that I didn't know or had assumed the opposite, Uh, Trippy talks in here about there are ways in which the sexual predation allegations against Roy Moore actually helped his campaign. Uh, Donald Trump was a lot more useful to the Moore campaign than I had thought he was in my understanding of how things had gone. Uh, The the race was much, much, much more stable than the polling suggested. There's a lot in here that uh, changed my understanding of this race. Uh, And so I think y'all are going to enjoy it quite a bit. Two quick things before we jump into it. One, of course, happy holidays. Thank you to all of you for, for listening. This is a, I believe this episode is coming out on Christmas Day so I hope you uh, enjoy it as you are escaping your family or enjoy it on the way back from seeing your family or whatever it might be. But but thank you for being part of this podcast. Also, uh, check out the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, I've been going in there to—the Weeds, of course, is my other podcast with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and others, where we talk about policy and politics twice a week. Uh, I love that podcast. If you're not listening to it, you should be. But our Facebook group is really fantastic. It's got about 12,000 people almost in it now. It's a, just an amazing, rollicking, Discussion of policy and politics. And I use it every week to ask about questions for my interviewees. I've been amazed by how great the questions some of you all are are offering me are. There are a bunch of your questions in this interview with Trippy. But but if you're interested in that, go join uh, the Weeds Facebook group. You can find it on, on the Facebook uh, machine. And it's a good place not only to connect with other people who are into these podcasts, but also if you're interested to, to give me some feedback on how this is going, what questions you want to hear me ask of upcoming guests. As always, you can also email me at Ezra at All that said, here is Joe Trippi. Joe Trippi, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. We've known each other a long time.
1: A long time, yeah. From the
2: early days of blogging, yeah, absolutely, the, of Dean, the first
1: days, yeah, the first absolutely. days. Yeah.
2: And now you're, I, I think it, it is a big jump for me to imagine the campaign manager of like the great liberal insurgency of 2004, and now you're, you're helping win races in in Alabama.
1: Yeah, that one I didn't, I didn't see coming. It's your personal 50 <laughs> like, state strategy. Yeah. It, well, it worked. I mean. Uh, Uh, I I never would have thought back in the Dean days, yeah, that I'd be, uh, you know, helping to win the first Democratic Senate seat in Alabama in a quarter of a century. It's pretty pretty amazing. How
2: did you first hear of Doug Jones?
1: I had done work in Alabama in the past. I mean, going way back uh, to the 80s uh, and early 90s. And uh, a guy by the name of Giles Perkins, who's a wonderful uh, Democrat down there. I'd worked with him in the past, and he called me up and said there was a guy named Doug Jones he wanted me to meet. I went down, and Doug was kind of not on the fence about running. He was, are you crazy? Are you guys crazy? It's Alabama. No Democrats won in 25 years. And we we've got to make the fight, but I don't want to. I don't want to do a suicide mission. I want to. run, If I'm going so to run. so what is the nature win.
2: of this meeting? Or is is Giles Perkins trying to convince Doug Jones to run? Are you trying to? Like what what sort meeting of, are we yeah. having? And when is it happening?
1: Whenever the seat opened up. I mean, I'm trying to. He was an, not ambivalent. He he wanted to run. He thought you know somebody had to stand up and fight, but he didn't want to do a suicide mission kind of thing. And so Giles and, and I and another guy named Doug Turner. Sat down at dinner with him, uh, with a couple uh, of other friends of his, and we had this long conversation about why it was possible, and and he decided, you know, let's let's do it. And uh, at that moment,
2: so this is before the Republican primary happens. Oh before yeah, before there's is, Roy Moore. Uh, yeah. What is your argument for why it is possible?
1: That I thought there was a real hunger to stop the division that was going on, that that Trump was actually driving people to want to end the chaos. Even if you liked him, you didn't want more chaos in Washington than than what he was already creating. And so um, that I I thought if if we could appeal to that in Alabama, that that would get us close. Doug Turner and and Giles uh, agreed with that, but they also believed that they could get a significant turnout with, and uh, in particularly in the African-American community, because of Doug's prosecuting the Klan. I mean, that he had a real attachment to the community and, was in, and so that if we could pull those two things together, um, you know, get enough Republicans to believe we got to stop the division and find common ground and at the same time not have that message dampen the enthusiasm that was naturally there for a guy like Doug Jones, maybe we could pull it off. And so, and even if we didn't, speaking out that way in Alabama, there'd be some building going on that could make Alabama move in the direction of, you know, making another Democrat in the future more more possible. And so, talking around the table that way, it was kind of like Doug decided hey you know I'm gonna go I'm gonna to run to win but I want to do it in a way that actually builds a bridge and makes it possible uh, that if I lose that that we've made the road a little bit easier uh, for the next guy that comes along or woman that comes along. Tell me
2: a bit about your first impressions of Doug Jones I mean now Doug Jones is like this sort of heroic name to, to liberals have the guy who took Alabama back and, and stopped Roy Moore. But when you just met him, like, as a person, what were your impressions of him? What were your impressions of him over the campaign? Like, what what kind of uh,
1: guy is Doug Jones? The two most decent people I've ever worked for would be, like, Walter Mondale and Doug Jones. I mean, they're t- totally different, you know, eras and maybe on the spectrum. Uh, ideologically, Jones isn't by any means a Mondale kind of liberal, you know but just amazing uh, character and and just a real decent uh, person. I mean, we need more like him in in Washington. Give me an example. Uh, He just wouldn't, you know, he's just not um, a politician. I mean, you know, that gets kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, he's not. But he just doesn't think that way. Uh, He really is a guy who prosecuted those, you know, the Klansmen and went back. You got to think about it that terror attack on that church happened like 38 years before anybody got justice. It was a cold case. He went and dug up and decided he was going to, you know, get justice. And and he did. And he was just, he's just a guy who wants to do what's right, do the right thing. And he's committed to, you know, equality for all. And a lot of things that right now are in jeopardy, I think. So, you,
2: When Doug Jones decides to run, he wins the Democratic primary pretty easily. Is there even another serious candidate in it?
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't as easy as everybody, you know. Think it's so like now. everything, yeah, everything is like... No, there, we were running against Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, a guy named Robert Kennedy Jr. Is he uh, a Kennedy, Kennedy? No, no, but no one knew, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're, you go to the ballot and there's a guy named Robert Kennedy Jr., or Doug Jones. And let me tell you, no one knew who Doug Jones was. I mean, in that primary. It
2: does. Doug Jones does sound like a name that you would pick um, yeah. to like hide your real name.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying it was like, it, you know, it was one of those things where we knew we desperately knew we had to avoid a runoff. So we had to, we had to run enough of a campaign um to to make sure we got over 50. And we weren't really sure. Again, because of the Robert Kennedy Jr. thing, House strongly we had to fight that out. But we, we, I think got sixty-five percent of the vote in the primary, so we avoided the runoff, which was key. Because that, uh, and by the way, at that point, no one was paying attention, right? Everybody's, no one was even really paying attention to the Luther Strange, Roy Moore vote very much. I mean, they were, but yeah. I mean, I'm in the lead up to their, to that primary. Um. So, on primary day, it it turns out it's Luther Strange and Roy Moore on their side, and they're in a runoff. And we avoid a runoff, which means we get to watch the two of them just tear each other apart for, uh, you know, till the the 26th of September. That was actually a key thing. It had to happen. I mean, we had to have that, I think, that fight go on and have fragments of of the Republican Party disenchanted with whoever the nominee is. We weren't sitting there, you know, rooting for Roy Moore. We thought if Luther Strange wins this runoff, the Roy Moore people are going to have problems with him. And if Roy Moore wins, the Luther Strange people are going to have problems with him. We need that. We we need to be, because that's the, the, those would be the people we would try to reach with the common ground message that, look, let's, you know, we've tried this big fight thing. Let's try to come together now that, that's in a, unity.
2: That sounds unintuitive to me, that if Luther Strange had won the runoff, that you would have been going after Roy Moore voters with a common ground message.
1: Yeah, because you have to—three things had to happen. for a, a, a bunch of Republicans had to stay home. A bunch of Republicans had to move to us. Or a bunch of Republicans had to write in somebody. I mean, I'm talking now, we'll get to the, the thing with, with, with Roy Moore— those all three of those things have to happen. And at the same time, you have to have a massive turnout of African Americans, millennials, and win over independence, big, and and win women, and have you know a lot of women turnout. So
2: I think a lot of the people listening to this, and this is probably true for me too, uh, even though we sent people down to cover the race and we profiled Roy Moore pretty early on. A lot of us have mostly experienced Roy Moore through sort of Roy Moore headlines, right? right. The Roy Moore um, allegations in the Washington Post of, of sexual predation of teenagers, the kind of much more controversial things Roy Moore has said. But you obviously now have been—we're watching Roy Moore for a long time in a more day-to-day way. What—tell me about Roy Moore. Like, how would you describe to somebody who's not in Alabama politics the role Roy Moore played and the way he— portrayed himself and and appealed to people.
1: Well, in a, in a lot of ways he's the perfect foil for our message, right? He's divisive, uh he, he thrives on chaos. He's at every turn a controversial figure. Uh, I mean every, on everything. I mean from the from being removed twice from the court for for not removing the 10 commandments. I mean just things like like that that were always controversial and Always kind of mean spirited and and I mean you know where he was take he did take money from neo Nazi groups I mean things like that I mean he's there was just nothing redeeming about the guy in terms of uh, so is that true I
2: mean so so help me on this because still fifty percent roughly of the vote went to Roy Moore right forty eight percent I guess and he is a guy who if some things had to come out maybe it would have been fifty two percent right it's possible what did Alabamian see in him. I mean, because they didn't think there's nothing redeeming about him. Like when you saw Roy Moore, was there ever one where you're like, I get how he appeals to people. I get what connection he is creating with that audience.
1: No, no he he connects with his uh, audience the same in a lot of ways. The same way Trump connects with his. Uh, supporters. I mean, there there's real support for him. I mean, it is, we we knew every single Roy Moore voter, you know what? how many Roy Moore voters there are in the state because every single one of them voted for him. I mean, there, not one of them stayed home. Uh, that didn't happen. That's not who stayed home. I think a lot of Luther Strange voters may have stayed home. And by the way, I think a lot of Roy Moore voters would have stayed home it had it been Luther Strange. I mean, that's part of what was was going on here. Uh, there is a big divide in the party. It, it extends to Alabama. And uh, Roy Moore and Luther Strange sort of represented, you know, the, the two sides of that. But, you know, Roy Moore engenders, like, really strong. Another one of those guys who could kill somebody on—go uh, <laughs> shoot somebody in Times Square and or Fifth Avenue and— and, you know, it'd be okay, you know. So. so
2: tell me where the election was in your polling, in your estimation, before the allegations. Oh, we know.
1: Out. We know exactly. I mean, we we had been running our our really strong message on finding common ground and came out of the field the day before the Washington Post allegation story. And that day, we were behind by one one point, 46 to 45. I could point out that the day before this election, we were ahead in our own survey by two points, and we ended up winning by like 1.8 or something. So our, our, as far as we're concerned, all those other polls that were doing 11 points, eight points, you know, and all over the place, we we were, we were feel pretty solidly that we were, you know, we were always on top of the pulse of what was happening. And it was a dead heat before, the day before the, the allegations came out. In a weird way, the key to us having a chance, was to detribalize the politics of the state. If Alabama was reacting to the tribal politics of our times, uh, there was no way for us to win, right? So, uh, that whole the whole message of common ground, of reaching out, of, of talking to each other, of finding uh, ways of, uh, you know, where we actually, you know, Jones literally looked, uh, spoke directly to the to the people in the in this ad, this honor ad we called honor, where he said, you know, there's honor and compromise and civility. I mean, think about that in the era of Trump in Alabama in a in, in with our tribalized politics. So the, what had closed the entire race to a dead heat was we had effectively Doug Jones had effectively removed that that you know people running to their to their two two corners, and what was sort of astonishing really was the allegations created tribalism again, right? Suddenly we're back into, well, you know, Republicans who don't believe the charges, it's the media out to get Roy Moore. I mean, this this, he's able to start tribalizing the the race. Trump is coming in now with with him. And every time that that happened, Roy Moore would open a, a lead. I mean, like so so the allegations in some ways helped him in your poll. in a though. weird way, yeah, because a lot of the things that people didn't like about him was the fact that he' had been removed from office twice, the fact that it started a chair, religious charity and and taken a million dollars from it after he told everybody he didn't he, he wasn't making any money from it. I mean, been many things that kind of had bothered people about him, that things that had come out in that Luther Strange Roy Moore primary, they were totally knocked off the charts. By the allegations and those other allegations, I mean the other problems that people had with them were sort of across party lines. It wasn't, you know, if you take a million dollars and and lie about it or don't tell the truth about it, whatever word you want to use, there are plenty of Republicans who are like scratching their heads saying, "Can I trust this guy too?" But when it comes to the allegations, it's suddenly there's a fake yearbook. I mean, he's he's able to to create all this doubt and then and then push against the 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 mainstream media who's out to get me. He's he's literally playing right into the Trump uh handbook. And you got Trump and Bannon uh you know along there with him trying to trying to create that tribal divide. These moves would be like a three or four point move. So what I mean by that is, you know, we could be behind forty five forty four or we'd be ahead forty five forty four. And then Trump would go out in the White House and say something about, you know, Roy Moore is who we need. We got to save the seat and then go trash Doug Jones as weak on crime when he had been a tough prosecutor, put the Klan in prison. You know, I mean, but he would go do that. He would move, but he'd move to like a three or four point lead. He so never— Trump
2: was helpful for Moore in Alabama?
1: For three or four points for like three or four days. And then it would drift right back to us. And so like— the, the thing I still wonder about was when uh, Trump went in on Friday in Pensacola. Man, thank you for not going in Sunday. Because Friday night, more went ahead four points again. Saturday, it was three points. Sunday, it was two points. We're sitting there Monday night going like, keep drifting. But Monday night, we were up by two. Um, so it had happened just like every other time. I mean, the key to thinking about it from our point of view was wait a minute, four points, that's it? Alabama, you won by 28 points here 13 months ago, and all you do is move Roy Moore from 44 to 48, and we're still at 45, or maybe we drifted down to 44. So that's that's it? I mean, when you say, well, so he helped him? Yeah, what he helped him do is get from 44 to 48 for three or four days, and then we drift back down. So we're sitting there at the end, watching him pop him to 48 again, never over 50. And he's drifting down. We're starting to come up and we go by him on Monday night. Now, I got to admit, you know, Tuesday, it wasn't like, you know, having seen that move and sort of see the drift going on. You know, we were on the edge of our seats all day long. And there was a good hour and a half on election night. (laughs) I think when he went up like 75, 80,000 votes ahead of us. Uh, but we were tracking what precincts were out, and we knew almost everything. In fact, everything left but except 17 precincts in Shelby County, where we were outperforming where we thought we needed to be. Even though that's a big that, that was going to be Roy Roy Moore territory, and we added it all up, and we were probably about an hour ahead of everybody else, knowing hey, it's going to be close. Could be 7,000 votes. Could be 30. But it's gonna be somewhere between seven and thirty thousand, end up being, I think, around twenty-three.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work.
2: There was no national Democrat who could come in and help out. I mean, y- it seemed to me that you all made the choice not to nationalize the election.
1: No, that's a point. the The whole point was was Doug Jones himself embodied the opposite of what's happening in our politics today. I mean, is his persona not being a politician, being a guy who is going to get justice for anybody and everybody, and not back down, not back away, and that we have to work together to get things done and stop the division and the hatred and the chaos that's that's up in Washington. And by the way, if you want more chaos, send Roy Moore. It'll be great, <laughs> you, you know. Um, it, to a place, by the way, who had sent Trump into the presidency, probably wanting the disruption and and some of the chaos that he, he created. But there's something going on where okay, I'm for that, but I don't want any more of it. And Roy Moore sort of represented, I think, to a lot of people that there would be an increase of divisiveness, of hatred, of chaos. And and so for Doug Jones, it was—we wanted the, the race to be seen as Jones versus Moore, that this chaos maker and this guy who wants to, to reach across party lines and, and actually find some common ground— Um, and you, that's your choice, Alabama, and not, uh, we've, we've seen what, what's happened, uh, earlier in the year when, when a race becomes nationalized, we had no real interest in doing, not, not just no interest. It just wasn't who Doug Jones is.
2: On net, and this may sound like a dumb question, but it seems to me you may have a more complicated view of it. On net, did the allegations and the focus on the allegations around Roy Moore's sexual predation, did that help or hurt more?
1: I think both. I mean, I just think it. It those were allegations he could cast out. There was a reason that you could believe him. So the if view you a wanted, lot of
2: people have that, absent those allegations, Doug Jones absolutely loses. You don't agree with that view?
1: No, not at all. I, I, I don't. I wouldn't say we'll never know if we could have won without the allegations. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But no, we had a dead heat before that, and it was all based on their. Their understanding of who Roy Moore was, and Alabama knew who he was, and and Doug Jones, uh, the guy who took on the Klan and was uh, wanted justice for everybody and was go- and wanted to find common ground. I mean that that was the choice, and we were in a dead heat in Alabama. You, you know, the day before the the Washington Post, we ended up winning a dead heat in Alabama on election day. So there were some three or four point moves in there because of the allegations and because of the injection of Trump, et cetera. But in the end, the race was pretty defined by the time those allegations came out. I definitely think they heard him. I mean, they didn't help him. But, you know, had we spent all those days talking about why he'd been removed from office, you know, uh, some of the crazy things he'd said over time and some of his policies and things, I'm not. I, I'm not saying we would have won that, but I, I think it's an oversimplification to say oh yeah well you know anybody could have won against that guy um, you know once those allegations came out that first of all the closest of the race tells you that's not true I mean I mean come on 23,000 votes the other way and and you know Trippy's an idiot right and so is everybody else who worked for for Doug Jones I mean that's I've, I've been around in this business long enough to know like that that's how it works and uh, uh, you know, this was really something I think that we had gotten to a dead heat long before those charges. And I think we would have had a dogfight the rest of the way. And we may have, I don't think the result would have been a whole lot different. I think we would have won or lost by two points. And that's sort of where, I mean, when you look at on election day, Trump has a 48% favorable and a 48% negative in Alabama. It's unreal. And that's what I'm trying to say. That had happened. That has nothing to do with the allegations. I mean, and by the way, I think that's why he could only move Roy Moore to 48 when he did jump in. So I don't know the utility that uh, he's going to be, I mean, uh, to other Republicans um, in places that aren't Alabama. I mean, it's 48-48 in Alabama. I don't know what it. I mean, you know, it's, it's that's got to be one of the high watermarks for him. Uh, maybe West Virginia's higher. I mean, I, 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 but I, I just think there's, there was, when you look at his favorable, when you look at where Roy Moore moved to when Trump came, you know, came into the fray, would move him to 48, never a point above, um, I think there's limited utility there. And I think that does tell you something. There were problems way before the allegations. I'm not saying—he yeah, may so, have beat us 51-49 without him. I, you know, we'll never know that. So
2: I was paying attention to the polls throughout this. And I would see these polls that were like, plus 13, Roy Moore, and minus—or plus 9, Doug Jones. And but, I mean, it was all over. And what I heard people saying over and over again was that it is almost impossible to figure out how to model turnout— so that you're appropriately weighting your polls right. in a Alabama special election under these conditions. So, how were you all polling this race? How were you all getting data that you could actually trust?
1: Well, it, Paul Maslin and Rick Sklarz were the polling team on the you know led by Paul. They modeled the race several different gradations of turnout. Under almost all of them, we barely would win. I mean, in other words, we would like, you know, we would sit there and no matter what we did, it was going to be 49, 48 point something, you know, or something like that. I mean, I remember one day we were modeling an 820,000 vote turnout and under an 820,000, we projected we could, given our number, polling numbers, we'd win 412 to 408, right? Right. I mean, four hundred twelve thousand yeah. to four hundred eight thousand. That's when if it's eight twenty. So then we would like run the model. What happens if it's if it's you know nine fifty, and we we win by like six sixteen thousand votes, and we modeled all the way up to I think like one one million one hundred fifty thousand, and we're winning by eighteen thousand. I mean, it does it just because. You're getting some, you know, but, but why is
2: that? I mean, that seems like in every one of those model assumptions, you're assuming that changes in turnout are hitting both sides equally.
1: No, because what we're looking at is what how many African Americans are telling us they're what percentage of them are telling us they're gonna vote in college educated whites and you know, all that, and what's their intensity level? So like what was happening during the entire campaign. Was you know you start out the campaign in on a zero to a hundred scale of intensity, sixty percent or ninety or above. Well, those people are voting right now. How, what's that model look like? And you know what? Now let's go down the the scale a little. And um, but by the end of the campaign, it was something like eighty percent of the people in our in our surveys were in that ninety to hundred thing. I mean, every single one of them was gonna was gonna vote. So all i'm saying is there was no level that we found where like a- again not conning ourselves about we're going to turn out more more african americans or maybe more millennials will vote than we think or, or that are telling us but just sort of modeling it along the way we always were in the lead when we projected things but by like ridiculously small margins i mean we i think we probably had to spend more money On digital advertising, or digital than any Senate campaign in history. I mean, we were going after every under forty-five year-old person on the planet, no matter. Well, in Alabama, but you know that we could find on with different targets. You know, people paid a lot of attention to the TV ads and things like that, and certainly we couldn't have done it with this with what happened and get out the vote in the African American community, but. I'm sure when it's over and we look at it there's not going to have been a senate campaign prior to this that spent as much money on digital than, than than we did trying to trying to reach people that weren't seeing our television or or hearing us knocking on their on their doors. One of the things that I found interesting about the
2: campaign was a model that I've become used to for Democrats running in very conservative southern states is for them to run on pretty conservative platforms to to run as a pro-life democrat to run as you know a, a sort of w- what in another context you might call like a democrat in name only and Doug Jones didn't do that he was very pro-choice in the campaign he was against the republican tax bill i mean he was i don't think particularly loud about his progressivism but on the other hand he it wasn't a very moderated form of it either and i'm curious
1: no so, they that made played sh- in. they made sure <laughs> <laughs> they they made sure that uh, the, you know on on digital and advertising to, to you know to go after us on all that stuff.
2: Was that a choice?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I mean the the one thing even at that dinner was you know he didn't he didn't want to run if it was a suicide mission and he didn't want to run by changing positions or somehow pandering to part of the electorate that meant he had to change his, you know where he really stood on things this is a guy who was not you could not walk into into the room and say hey the poll says you know 68% of the people of Alabama are for x and you're on the other side of that he's the kind of person that would go out and say we don't agree let me explain to you why I'm where I'm at and why we should try to find a way for us to to get to some middle ground on this. Doug Jones was a realist. If that's how, why he got rejected, he could live with that. I mean, you know, he moved the ball forward. Um, he wanted to win, don't get me wrong. But I actually think that w- we got a lot of people voting for us because, you know, Donald Trump, people know where he stood. You know, I mean, they know you, you, you could disagree with him, but you know where he is. I'm not so sure about that with Trump now, but I mean, I'm talking about what the appeal that he has with some of his folks. I think Doug Jones got a lot of support because people just saw him, they believed him. Even if they didn't agree with him, they knew, okay, so he's not he's not hiding that from me. If so, you know, if he tells me he wants to reach common ground, then maybe he really does. I mean, I think there was an authenticity to him and a credibility to him that that Moore didn't have. One of the things that kept happening when we were talking to people, was they, without us bringing it up, uh, would start talking to us about how they didn't understand why Jones, every time Jones was on television, he was always talking to them. Because every one of our spots was him just dead to camera talking to the people. We never had, you know, he's talking about being a steel worker. We never had like a steel, you know, uh, plant behind him or anything like that, or even like going over and or pictures of his dad are in the steel mill. We didn't do that. It was always him dead to, to just looking and talking directly to people. And we wanted to do that. We wanted to get people to to understand who and what he was the, like, and make their own judgment. But what we didn't realize was at the same time, Roy Moore never appeared in any of his ads. It was always big, booming music and shots of aircraft carriers and strong for the military and all that, which is, you know, important stuff. But what was really weird was we when you're on the phone, when people are on the phones and, and you're interacting with voters, and they're actually saying, how come Roy Moore doesn't talk to us? I trust your guy. And, you know, it's dawning on me. Roy Moore's never talked to us. If you go back at the look at the last spot we we did, the last lines in it are, you know, think about it. When was the last time Roy Moore ever looked you in the eye and told you the truth? And then just then, not at the top of the spot, the negative spot, but at the very end, looking dead at you, I'm Doug Jones, and I approve this message, just looking straight into the camera. So, what we we were reinforcing that this guy wasn't telling you the truth, he never looked you in the eye and told you the truth. And the entire campaign, there's one guy that's been doing that. And by the way, he's about to do it again. He's going to take responsibility for this, ad, for this you know negative ad. No one ad did any, but I'm saying that there was a method to what we were trying to do.
2: So if Senator Chris Van Hollen, who's running the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee for 2018, came to you and said, what are the lessons of this race for everyone else? Is the answer that, well, it's a weird Alabama race and Roy Moore is weird and there's not something universalizable here? Or do you think that there is something that the broader Democratic Party has to learn?
1: I think there is a almost infinite hunger in the country right now among many, many voters, Republican, Democrat, independent, for ending the division, the hatred, the hate talk. Um, and finding common ground. The question we had in the campaign was, well, wait a minute, there are a bunch of partisans on both sides who you say, let's find common ground, work with the other side. And they're like, what, get out of here. You know, I want somebody who's going to go punch Trump in the face and, you know, have it out with those damn Republicans on the floor and and vice versa. Um, That was the Howard Dean
2: campaign. Yeah, yeah, right. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've been there. Uh, yeah, it, but it's a different time too. This isn't George Bush. I mean, it's a it's a different time, and I think, you know, I think what's going on is Trump, even with his own supporters who like him, he's created enough enough hostility and chaos that they don't want more of it. They can tolerate it with him, but I don't. They don't want more. They really want people to work together. And so Roy Moore repre- represented. More of that, I think. I think both parties, candidates are out there running right now. Do not underestimate the power of of pushing not just against Washington, but against and and not just against they can't get anything done, but against the division and chaotic and and hostile Washington D.C. And that it's time. It's time to actually sit down reach across the aisle and, and and start getting things done for the american people now the problem with that and that's where we didn't have a primary i mean now let's go back to robert kennedy junior we sign of the famous kennedy family yeah yeah right <laughs> so we did i mean we had a primary but no, you know what i'm saying yes, it wasn't I know. Uh, it wasn't a a fight uh we didn't have to fend off um, a bunch of people who would have been, who might have been out there, I don't know if they would or not, but it would have been, you know, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know, uh, talking about finding common grounds with uh, with uh, those Republicans or vice versa. That happened. I mean, when we ran the honor ad, Gettysburg and the Civil War and the Battle of the Little Round Top, that's w- the, probably the spot that closed it. Can we talk uh, about that ad for a minute? Because sure.
2: I think that ad is a unusual ad to somebody who is not familiar with it. So you have an yeah. ad that is about Gettysburg right. in Alabama. Yeah. And the point of that ad is that Doug Jones would like to go work with some Northerners on legislation.
1: Right. Yeah. As I'd an, like to know about the as, thinking of that ad. As an Alabamian. As an Alabama. He's the yeah. Alabamian in that thing, right? He wants to go meet with the representatives from Maine and the other, uh, all the other states, not on a battlefield, but to find common ground, because there's honor and compromise and civility and getting things and com- coming together to get things done. How did that ad?
2: What is the genesis of that ad? Who had the idea of like let's remind Alabamian voters of the Civil War,
1: and then it, is that, is that an was actually for a Democrat that,
2: compromising with
1: Maine. That ad was really the. I'd say I'd give Paul Maslin credit for being the father of it. He wrote an email to me. Again, we're trying to internalize what Doug Jones had been saying to us about why he was running, you know, so we're writing, you know, things back and forth, and and he wrote, Paul wrote this, like, you know, I don't know, four or five paragraph, you know, it's like this battle in Gettysburg and, you know, you know and reaching uh, for common ground, and so I, he and I started working on it, and then Giles Perkins... Um, I think came up with sort of the he was the chair of the campaign um, and not a media guy uh, came up with the no, with the I think sort of the 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 real home run line that that Doug had talked to him about earlier in the thing, which was there's honor and compromise and civility, and somehow that uh, it all came together, and we decided to you know that you know Doug didn't blink he he this is why he was I mean it was why he was running I mean this is a guy. He saw what was happening, you know, that we're sort of coming apart as a country right now politically, that our politics are falling apart, and that, the, you know, the chaos of, um, uh, and hostility that we're seeing, you know, where people don't want to work together, they want to, they want to have a big battle in Washington, was sort of a metaphor for, um, you know, going to speak for Alabama, meet the, the representatives of the, uh, of the other states, not on a battlefield, but to find common ground. Washington shouldn't be a battlefield. So then,
2: to, to go back to the the broader question for Democrats in 2018, as you're saying, there is this there is this issue where a Democrat running in a contested primary is going to be running against Democrats who have a very confrontational approach to Trump, and then there are going to be those who want to run a campaign that is more about turning the temperature
1: down. Well, that's what what I'm what I'm saying is. I think the big question marks in our heads as we're going down this road of this common ground thing, using the Civil War as a way to talk about it, is what do rank-and-file Democrats do when they see that? I mean, what do African—I Amer- mean, you, you know, you're you, what do—I mean, do we depress or do we somehow uh, de-energize the, the, those people who want to—you know, who really are appalled by what's going on with Trump and want to— do something about it, you know, and and want a Democrat uh, to to fight with him, or you know, or to, to fight for the th- the things that they that they you know that are in jeopardy right now. Um, and it it what happened was we didn't get it was, it was again we're monitoring everything and we're seeing the you know on the zero to one hundred scale intensity levels and stuff things and it never what what happened was. We start—Republican women started to move to us. Um, Younger Republicans started to move to us. And the intensity among Democrats didn't diminish—in fact, over time, kept building and building. So what I'm saying is I think in Alabama, we pulled that off. I mean, pulled off um, what what Doug Jones wanted to pull—I mean, from day one at that dinner, what he wanted to do. And I think there's— there's power in it um, that, again, I think this is, it's one of these crazy things where Trump's creating all of it, right? He's creating that energy among the base that wants to come out and wants to stop and, you know, wants to make the, ch- the change and wants to do something to fight back against what's happening. At the same time, he's creating enough chaos and divisiveness that Republicans who would never nor- never ordinarily vote for a Democrat, I'll vote for somebody who wants to try to find common ground and get things done for me even if they're a democrat and trust me a lot of people in Alabama had to do that right that's the that's I think a winning message in a lot of these a lot of these swing um you know districts I mean you know you there aren't there aren't that many swing districts that are plus 28 Trump out there right, right. you know
2: so so one thing I think that this goes to cuz this is something I've been thinking about a bit recently my intuition is that for Democrats, the winning message in 2020 is basically it doesn't have to feel like this. Yeah. I don't think anybody in the country, even most Republicans, I shouldn't say anybody, right? Some yeah. people are perfectly happy here. But I think most people do not want politics to feel like this. They don't want to take yeah. up this much space in their heads. They don't want it to feel as conflictual with their neighbors. It's just yeah. like the whole thing feels terrible. Right. Like, even no matter no, what you they just, run, it, it, it feels terrible. That's what I'm saying. But I, I don't know that it doesn't have to feel like this has any chance of winning a democratic primary at all
1: no that's that's exactly what we're saying we didn't have that part that right. we didn't have that problem because we didn't have a primary so the problem you've got is that in both parties the people who want who want to feel this way or whatever i don't think anybody wants to feel this way i'm with you on that but but there you know where a lot of the energy is in the primaries uh may you know, it has systematically started to remove the people uh, uh, like Doug Jones and his message uh, on both sides. I mean, you know, we've gotten rid of all, almost all the blue dogs in our in the South and the Democratic Party, and they're they're getting rid of all their rhinos. And what we're you know what's happening, I think, is um, uh, we're creating a bigger group in Washington on both sides of that that. That are making us feel this way, along with the president, who's the band leader. But, um, uh, and so, I think you're right. I think one of the things that worked for us, and, and that, that's a, actually, you just put your finger on why I think we won. They don't want to feel this way. And Roy Moore, they knew, was going to continue to make them feel this way. And they knew Doug Jones was not. You said something to Toron Brownstein in a CNN article I've been thinking a little bit about, where
2: you said that the angst that people would hear from activists about some of the messages was not reflected in in the, the public. And when I asked my audience for questions for this interview, the most popular one was, why did Doug Jones say it's time to move on from Donald Trump's sexual harassment? Right? People, liberals yeah. are angry about that.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think, first of all, I think he'd be the first to admit he could have said that better. But I think w- what he was saying was, Donald Trump's not going to resign over these charges. He's just not. It's, you know, that's not going to happen, right? The, you know, mostly what he, I think, you know, I'm not trying to get into, but that, I mean, that was what he was trying to say. The reality is there's a bunch of investigations going on. You know, he was thinking in terms of defending the Mueller investigation, things like that. I'm not getting into, I taught, had a brief conversation with him and uh, and I know that the thing, i mean—you go back and look at what he's said about about sexual harassment and and Roy Moore it was it was a, a clumsy way of of uh, and didn't you know I think he would have said it uh, di- differently, but what he was what he meant to say or what he is saying is, you know, th- th- Donald Trump's not going to resign over this. He's not going to take these charges seriously. Let's get you know get on to the things. But, that,
2: but the question I want to ask you about that and and it's broader here than even Doug Jones. I say this as someone who has written and said that I think Donald Trump should resign morally, that I think he should be impeached for being a dangerous president. But that said, there's going to be a lot of pressure on elected Democrats to voice the most aggressive form of the critique of Donald Trump. sure. That may not be... The version of Democrats that will appeal to the widest swath of of the general audience, and I think the way people imagine that trade off is that that is a trade off between base turnout and persuadable voters. Right, that if you go with the, you know, Donald Trump should resign, he should be impeached. On the one hand, you get a lot of Democrats to turn out, or a lot of liberals to turn out. But if you go with the sort of broader, you know, Doug Jones and Alabama approach then maybe you can get more of the say Republican college educated women. Do you think that is a trade-off? Do you think that's a a real choice or a false one?
1: I I think it's a false one. It would be good if both parties could grow up a little. Uh, And I don't mean that, but what I mean by that is that, um, okay, yeah, Roy Moore could be the senator from Alabama. That would be great, right? So, like, you know, there, Doug Jones is representing Alabama, not us. Uh, uh, and I think he's going to do a damn good job of that. He's got values and he's got his principles. And all of us uh, out there the, looking at these districts, if we constantly, as, as you know, sort of pr- as progressives, try to nominate at all times in every case, the most progressive, pure anti-Trump candidate we can find. Hey, no one can challenge me on that. Okay, I did Howard Dean, right? So I'm just, I'm just saying. Like I think, like yeah, we could do that. It might even make us feel really good until Election Day comes around. When in, in you know, in West Virginia, that doesn't work too well, and we get eight Roy Moores instead of really good, solid Democrats who 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 care about the right things justice for everybody um healthcare uh and yeah there are not going to be uh we're not going to love every single one of their votes but if every time that ha- that they we don't love their vote we decide we're going to you know oh that you know that's the end of them we don't we don't uh, you know getting to where the Republicans are right now, where if you do anything that you don't agree with Trump, you're a rhino or, you, you know, you, you're a traitor, whatever. I mean, yeah, I you know, I guess if that's where both parties end up, it's not going to be a very good place.
2: Are there top Democrats out there who you are looking at or you say, that's the right message nationally for the party? Or that's somebody that you're just watching as a as a figure who you think has put their finger on something?
1: Uh, I'd say... I don't think so. I mean, I don't mean that the wrong way. I just think that there, there's a lot of grappling right now. A lot of you know trying to to figure that out. And I think there are a lot of good candidates, you know, you know, uh, out there or potential candidates out there who are onto something, you know, onto this or onto that. But I don't think anybody's put a core message together that Democrats have responded to. I think we, you know, that, and my experience is that doesn't tend to happen until a presidential year. I mean, we all go out now in 2018, you have zillions of candidates running everywhere and, and, you know, it's the, the fight happens between wings of party, the party and things. And then, um, and, you know, then a Howard Dean or somebody comes along that no one really saw coming and they put you know they, Donald they, Trump. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and I think uh, when you're when you're out of power like this, that's what happens. Now, there's, I mean, I think there's lots of, you know, I think there there's a generational divide in the in the Democratic Party that I think is going to get played out in 2020. There's a, definitely an ideological divide that's in the party that's going to take place in 2020, and I think whoever wins the the nomination will end up being the embodiment of the right, you know, what that message is that brings it all together.
2: One of the things that was striking to me looking over the exit poll data and the, just the vote data in Alabama was, so in 2012, young Alabamian voters uh, went for Mitt Romney by four points. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Jones election, they overwhelmingly went for Doug Jones. Even Romney by four, is a pretty near vote for Republican in Alabama. What do you think Alabama politics are like in 15 or 20 years as these generations change over? Oh,
1: it's, yeah, that, that's the, what's going on. I mean, as the 45 and under generation uh, continues to move and it's, you know, it's the new South rising. Um, and uh, you saw that coalition coming together for Doug Jones. And it was African-Americans, women, and and people under 45. And you want to, like, how breathtaking that move is? Think about this. And I think these numbers are right. Barack Obama nationwide won under 45s, so I think, by 14 points, 15 points. Hillary Clinton won them by 14. Okay. In Alabama, Doug Jones won them by, like, 28 points. And that's, I think, happening across the country right now. I think Northam had similar... Uh, numbers in Virginia. So I think, yeah, that's that's a real problem for Republicans over the, you know, over the long term, generationally, there's going to be, and I also think it could be, it could materialize in our 2020 uh, presidential election, in which right now we're tending to look at a bunch of the 70-something uh, candidates. Uh, uh, and I think there, you know, th- there may be A rising tide of sort of a, I don't know JFK, but I mean like that generational fight that happened uh, uh, for uh, you know back in that election in the sixties, you know where we ended up going to the you know the youngest president in in history at that point, maybe still, but uh, but I mean I think that could we could end up nominating somebody from the that generation um, in two thousand twenty that we're not uh, we're not thinking about right now.
2: I want to change lanes here for, for a couple of minutes while I still have you. So you were there really at the dawn of internet age politics. I mean, I think of the Howard Dean campaign as much as any campaign of really kicking off um, how campaigns are done online. Uh, and it was like before really social media, right? It was meetup. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I yeah. remember meetup. And now you see Trump in his Twitter feed and Facebook and its echo chambers and its Russian bots as somebody who is a pretty early theorist and practitioner on how the internet can change politics, are you disappointed?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, I was probably too naive and too utopian about it, and d- didn't see the dystopia that would uh, result from it. But uh, I mean, I was about you know that the, the two thousand four campaign was you know how do we how do we use this stuff to empower people, and it was I thought it was going to be so empowering. We're going to you know. Uh, we're gonna wipe out big money in politics because all of us little people would be able to pull our money and and change everything. and uh, you know, and that though that, that was my hope for it. Now I look at it and like, you know, uh, I mean we, the day, uh, you know we were tracking uh, bots, and we, like the last week, we were uh, like ten thousand bots were generating sixty five thousand tweets an hour against us. Um, Everything from pushing hashtag fake yearbook against the accuser. I mean, you know, and you're sitting there looking at this and like you're getting your bot tracking report back that 65,000 tweets an hour are hammering you. And like, you know, we're not going to go hire a Russian bot army or wherever, whoever and however that's happening. Do you think a bot army like that matters? Like, are people paying attention? Now, there's
2: so much media and attention and, like, discussion and information in the race. Like, a Turkish bot farm, is that is that something that when we hear it, people get scared out of proportion to its actual effect? I think— are, partly uh, given I, that, like, the race was pretty stable the whole time, as you say—
1: uh, yeah, I, I think I think both of those things are true. We probably you know get freaked out by it, more, may maybe more than we should. On the other hand, in a race where there in this, I would take this back to the presidential 2016 race too. Do I know for sure that there aren't 15,000 people in Alabama that that didn't vote for Roy Moore because they they believed the fake yearbook store? I mean that the, because they were getting it in their you know everything that they were seeing in their stream, um, at that level, you know, impacted them. Is the same thing about you know, did did were there eleven thousand people in Michigan or you know who stayed home or didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because you know you know because of of uh, fake stories that were moving around? Uh, I'm not making the accusation that. They were did, that they did, but I'm saying like that's when you get that kind of doubt going in our system. I mean, it, you know, whether we can trust what's really happening and what is or isn't fake news. And there's bot, you know, these bot armies out there. And by the way, I mean that the, 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 the starts it a bot starts as a bot, but then a Jones uh, volunteer sees a bot attack more, uh, you know, in a tweet and retweets it, and it's now coming from Joe Trippy to Ezra right and now and, and and it's now got some credibility yep. that it didn't have 5 minutes ago and so that's that's the part i think what's really what we as americans as citizens as members of our different parties need to understand is that we are unwitting part of the attack we can somebody can just push a little poison to me and Man, it's anti-Trump. Wow! And this is really a good meme. Bam! Right? I'm I'm retweeting it, and the other side's doing the same thing. In fact, man, this is great. We can do this. We can do this both ways, and these idiots will all beat up each other and and, and stop talking to each other and stop getting anything done. And and guess what? They'll all want to go to. They'll all want to take each other on, and 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 say horrible things about the other side. Well, guess what? It's working really well.
2: Do you see any reason for hope that some of the early ambitions of digital politics can be affirmed, realized? Is there is there some way to make what the utopians hoped a little bit more true?
1: I, I have severe doubts about it. I'm still hopeful. Uh, I do think it will probably be... Um, the, it, it could easily be our, the next presidential candidate that makes that happen. I, I just, I'm, 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 I'm a believer that you know uh, that we tend as a people to pick opposites as our next president, and you know Trump absolutely the opposite of Obama, uh, you know Nixon Carter, and I think you know the 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 right leader who steps forward and starts to to call on the country to unity. If thousands of Americans, millions of Americans start to to build into that that candidate's network, that it's possible that y- you need something like that to sort of start to make us—you uh, know, we, the, the one thing, right now, everybody goes to their corner, and they all go to their corner on social media, too, you know, and, and, and um, that's—I I don't know what the answer is. I think it's going to take somebody— a a national leader stepping forward that that that's trusted by enough people on both sides to say, hey, let's put let's put the, let's put the weapons down. Uh, you know, but, but I'm not going to use my Twitter handle the way I've been using it. Uh, and we instead right now, we've got a, a president who tells us shows us exactly how to, you're supposed to use Twitter. And unfortunately, uh, you can't even I can't even counsel people not to. Right. I mean, that's like, you know.
2: So then Ridiculous. here's here's the final question we ask on this podcast, which is the opposite of how we use Twitter, which is what are three books you've loved, cared about, influenced you that you'd recommend people
1: read? Oh, man. What It Takes. Richard Van um, inter- Yeah, but if you're interested in politics. That and book is how we politics. know each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it got
2: me into Gary Hart, and you were reading me because I was some random young kid into Gary Hart.
1: Yeah, right. And I try I I've, that's how I've always been. I've, you know, I hear see somebody who's who's starting out and say, "Hey, look! Don't you know? Don't don't look at it this way. You know, it, it's not that bad." Uh, but uh, that that book, I, the book on Da Vinci, right now, I just got Walter Isaacson. Yeah, yeah. Walter yeah. book is great. Uh, oh, the book on Grant. Oh, the new yeah. the new biography yeah. of Ulysses yeah. Grant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good one too. That's I Cherno mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Cherno
2: Yeah. Uh, Joe Trippy, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you to Joe. That, that was fantastic. Um, I, I, I have a lot here that I want to think about uh, after this episode. Thank you to all of you for, for tuning in. To my producer, Jillian Weinberger, Ezra Klein Show will be back next week.